Wow. So, we today conclude our five-part look at this very short book in the Old Testament of the Bible, the book of Esther. It bears the name of the key figure in the story, and the story is an epic one. I think, I think films have been made of it, but it certainly has sufficient ingredients to make it into a Hollywood blockbuster film. Uh, just to recap some of the things that we've had already in the story. We've had Playboy princes. We've had 24-7 drinking parties. We've had peep shows. We've had a sex factor audition for a new queen. We've had assassination plots that have been foiled at the last minute. We've had secret plans for a genocide that have been thwarted by a viral prayer meeting. Three days of pray and fasting. We've had a man on a horse, which is always cool. Uh, We've had a dinner party, which ended in death for one of the people that was uh, invited along. That's always an interesting end to a dinner party. And uh, in the chapter that Ellie just read to us, Queen Esther risks her life for the sake of her people, the Jewish people, by entering the presence of the king. She knew full well that there was an edict that said no one may enter the presence of the king in his court without the invitation of the king. And to do so without the king extending his royal scepter was an an immediate penalty of death. And so she took the risk in order to bring her petition to the king that she would go uninvited into the presence of the king and only if he extended that scepter to her could could she be heard. Otherwise, nothing would happen but she would be killed. Her guardian uh, and cousin, Mordecai, who has looked after her and kept her safe from when she was a child, is promoted to to the second highest office in the land and this decree is issued which then brings protection to the Jews um, in all of the kingdom that Xerxes rules over. We said at the beginning of this series that this whole book is something of a muddle. It contains no uh, internal uh, narrative upon what happens and no external commentary on the events that unfold. The reader, you and I, are left to discuss and debate, to ponder and to think through what is the meaning of these events that are recorded for us and what we think of them. And so, as we won't get to read it in this series, but if you want to complete it, read chapter 9 and the short part of chapter 10, you'll see that uh, this petition that's sealed in the name of the king goes out. All the Jews are informed that they now may protect themselves from persecution. Their threat of genocide is, is gone. That seems a very happy piece of news. And so what happens is they gather, they celebrate on a day, and they kill all their enemies. Ouch. 75,000 people are killed on that day. No commentary is offered Is that good? Is that okay? Is it good because they were God's people protecting themselves? Or is it still bad because in order to protect themselves from genocide, they commit mass murder against those that held ill against them? Haman, who, uh, when uh, we heard when Gav spoke to us uh, last week, Haman, who, who is hanged for his kind of persecution of Mordecai, uh, the Jews that protect themselves gather up his ten sons and their families and hang them all. 
Is that okay? No commentary is offered on that. We are left to imagine what we think is the answer to that, whether that's good or whether that's bad. And we've had some powerful characters in this story, and as we'll say actually in a minute, it, 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 it very much is a story, uh, a play that's brought to life before our eyes. We've had this uh, incredible character of Xerxes. He's the playboy king. He inherits an incredible kingdom that his father built, but he's something of a weak leader. In fact, he's almost lavish, lavish in his behaviour. He throws these drinks parties and these extravagant events. Uh, he's, he's immature in the way uh, he behaves and the decisions that he takes. He's got issues with women. He thinks his wife is an object that can be summoned naked in front of his friends for their kingly entertainment. And he thinks it's acceptable to have a four-year audition of young girls auditioning them in his bedchambers to select which one might be the best one to be his future queen. He's a bit of a muddled guy. He's got some issues. And uh, he also, the other side of it is he's kind of swayed by Esther. This is his vulnerability. He's got problems in this area. And actually Esther, who he does select as his queen, has the advantage almost in that actually through her beauty and through his adoration of her, that's part of the story that brings the deliverance of God's people. That Esther, through her beauty, is actually able to sway the king. In fact, when she goes before him in the chapter that was read, uh, the king says to her, Wow, whatever you want, you can have even up to half my kingdom. And then he hands over his royal ring, which is not just the symbol of his authority, but is the power of his authority. In fact, in the story, he does that twice. Twice, he takes his king's ring and he gives it to somebody else before they have said what they want and says to them, do whatever you want with it. That would be the equivalent of me giving you my bank card, writing my PIN number on it and say, whatever you want to do, it's fine with me. Do you know what? I don't think I would do that. If any of you feel like you want to do that for me, that's fine. Come and see me afterwards. We'll um, sort out some kind of deal. This is, this is the kind of guy he is. He, he has amazing power and yet he is foolish with it. We don't hear his end in the story of the book of Esther, but other historic accounts tell us that he was eventually killed by one of his own bodyguards. He dies at the hand of a servant. And Xerxes, if you like, we can look, look at him as the idea of a leader. Even though we see bad traits in him, we can see that he is someone who had a role of leadership. Maybe you're uh, someone who feels called to leadership, or perhaps that, even that particular aspect of maybe something that's up front and, and visible. And then perhaps in pondering the life of Xerxes, you need to consider some of the flaws that he had in his life. Some of the things that beset him, because many of those things are common to all. Uh, you know, I, I love discipling young men, and actually when I'm doing that, the, some similar issues crop up all the time. Maybe if you're involved in sharing your faith and encouraging others, you, you will know similar things are common to many of us. Maybe we need to work through the issues of 
what we, what we drink and foolish things that we might do if we have too much, or how we feel about um, people of the opposite sex, or how we handle responsibility or power. Open the newspaper any week and you will see people of high office who do something foolish and call someone a pleb or something like that, and then bang, an amazing position of well-earned um, you know, importance can be gone overnight. Or some person who sends a, you know, people, even sports people have recently in the last month lost their job through a foolish tweet or a, or a, a few words spoken at a sporting event. For men and women alike, we look at the person of Xerxes and we can learn lessons of leadership from it. Next we have this guy, Haman. Haman was um, actually, probably, quite a smart guy. There's no way he would have got to his role of high office in the kingdom, the right-hand man of this, uh, the greatest king, king, uh, kingdom of Persia that's ever existed. There's no way he would have got to that role without having some good stuff about him. He was clearly a capable and competent person. But something of his potential and his character is skewed and perverted. There are no surprises there. His mentor, the person he looks up to, is Xerxes. So in a way, he's kind of almost a disciple of Xerxes. And in fact, often we, we, um, we are shaped and moulded by those that mentor us, or the, those that we esteem as heroes. Um, I read an interesting article a few months ago that said, you are the average of your five best friends. Now, there's all sorts of ways that you can think about that, but there's a lot of truth in that, actually. You are shaped and moulded by those people who you open your heart to and you hold in highest regard. Um, later this week, we're going to go and watch James Bond. I love James Bond. Whenever I watch James Bond uh, uh, film at the cinema, as I leave the cinema, I have suddenly become a spy. I have acquired athletic ability that I didn't have when I walked in before. You know, my driving skills have gone, woo, you know, off the scale. You know, somehow in, in, in watching and adoring that character and, and lifting them up as a hero in your eyes, it shapes and moulds you. Fortunately, going to the cinema, it's very temporary. But if that's how we live our lives, actually those who are around us that we esteem and look up to, those that we invite into our lives to mentor us, whether we do that by choice and we, we, we pursue that as an active thing, or whether we're passive and we allow it to be done to us, like Herman, then we can be um, shaped and moulded by that. And this guy, of course, plans a whole genocide, a horrific thing. And he's not the first person in history to do that, and he certainly wasn't the last to do that. You think of the plight of the Jewish people um, during the Second World War. And I read a few years ago uh, an account of somebody who went to the Nuremberg trials and they watched people who were accused of war crimes and the, the, the trial that took place and the sentencing that happened. And uh, one of them, and I forget the name of the person, but they wrote a book and through their experience at the trials they became uh, a Christian through that experience. And I think they went to the trial of Adolf Eichmann. And, in the, and they went to the trial imagining that they would see some horrific monster. 
And, and the, the revelation that they got was when they saw that person in the trial, they realised that person is just a person. And the thing that was the key that led to them becoming a Christian was they looked at that person and realised that that man there who planned and did such horrific things is actually a human being just like me. And that it wasn't that somehow he had been born into being something so evil that he would be a part of attempting genocide. But actually the circumstances of his environment and his life had put him in a place where that kind of was the path that he followed. Not in the sense of not being responsible, but he was shaped and moulded by those around. Haman uh, has a comical end, um, and in the passage that was read uh, last week, he, he realises that uh, the king is not going to be pleased with him. The king is so angry, he goes for a walk outside, have a cigarette, something like that, cool down. And uh, he realises the only one that can intercede on his behalf is Esther. So he's down on his knees sort of begging her, please, please help. The king comes in and with the comedy almost of a carry-on film, the king, the king kind of thinks, this is the last straw. Are you even going to molest my wife? For goodness sake, take him out and he's hanged straight away. I think his life represents something of that parable in the Bible that we, we reap what we sow. I wonder if you can identify with him. He's not the charismatic celebrity leader of Xerxes. He's something of a, of a middle person. He's a competent person who does great things, but perhaps from behind the scenes. In a way, he's someone who's got to find his own way and his own morality. He's got to work out what's right. He's got to work out sometimes when the person he's working for isn't necessarily leading him in the right direction. He's got a lot about him. He's got a lot of power. Imagine the good that he could have done. But actually, his insecurities overtook him. He couldn't bear the fact that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. He couldn't put that aside, and that's what led him into thinking, I must get rid of all of the Jews, because that one Jew will not bow down. Something about that ate him up inside, and spoilt his life in terms of what it could be. Mordecai we have, and Mordecai was uh, Esther's uh, cousin, and he, became, he, he adopted her because Esther was an orphan, and he became her guardian. So Mordecai is a parent. And like any parent, he's made sacrifices through his role of being uh, a parent. He's also a faithful watcher over Esther. Even when she's transported from his house into the king's house, uh, he, you know, he hangs around. He hangs around at the gates of the palace because he, he wants to be useful. He wants to look out for her and make sure that she's okay. He's a humble man because he uncovers this assassination plot. And so he sends word and the king is saved. But actually for years and years he's not rewarded. You know, many people might struggle with that. But it seems he was, he was humble about that. That didn't, didn't kind of knock him off course. He didn't think, right, we'll blow it. You know, I told Esther. Esther told the king. I didn't get a medal or anything like that. So she's on her own. Leave her to it. No, he was still faithful. And every day he's going to the palace gates to see if he can look... Um, after her. And he's, he's probably a humble man as well because this whole thing of sitting at the, the gates of the palace was probably some kind of almost uh, being a bit like a magistrate. That somebody who would sit um, 
at the gates and others would come before you and stand. That would, that's a symbolising almost of an authority role. It's possible that in the community of the city, he was like uh, a kind of a justice of the peace or a magistrate. Someone you would go to to settle the petty disputes and the minor uh, crimes. And it would, have, you know, it would have been an unpaid thing. It would have been just that he was a person of regard in the community that others would go to. And so he availed himself to them. And of course he was a, a mentor to Esther. Because Esther didn't make it on her own. She needed people like Mordecai to help her to achieve everything that she needed. He, he was the one that told Esther, we need to pray. And it was through Esther that the word, that all the people need to pray and fast. But it was Mordecai who said, this is what you must do. He is the one that said to her in chapter 4, you must stand up. And in fact, he's really blunt with her and he says, you know what, this is, you've been put in this place for a reason. But if you don't stand up for what's right, then actually someone else will be used to do it. So you need to step up now and you need to do the brave and the right thing. And I see him as somebody who brings out the best in others. He's not getting the glory and the limelight. He does get rewarded at the end, but he kind of, he didn't know that. He doesn't know that. He's not doing it for that. He is somebody who just longs to nurture and to bring out the best in Esther. Do you know, I think, I, I count it a privilege to work at G2 and in, uh, the other part of my work with Alpha, to work with people who I think often bring out the better parts of me. People who can be encouragers and can, can inspire me and encourage me to do to do better or to step out and to do to try the next thing or to be encouraged and to not give up in doing something. Maybe you're someone like that. There is an incredible power in just being a faithful and persistent, encouraging person. And maybe you encourage somebody and they get, you know, they get the credit for it. And that's, that's okay because it's an amazing and wonderful thing to do that. Maybe you're a parent and that's your heart for your children, or maybe you're a spiritual parent, and that's what you're simply offering to other people in Jesus' name. And then, of course, we have Vashti. Vashti appears very early in our story, and very quickly she is gone. She is a hero, but she's a hero of a very distinctive kind. She stands up for what's right. She's summoned to appear at this drunken party and the king's word must be obeyed but she says no I'm not doing that she stands up for what is right and actually as a hero she is not recorded she's not honoured and in fact in our story she's not heard of again we don't know if she's killed or merely just sort of sent away or she just is maybe demoted into some 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 humble and menial role in the kingdom in a way she's a more realistic Hero. We live in a society where we crave and we are shown examples of disproportionate reward to talent. Watch any of the Saturday night you know, talent shows of X Factor and The Voice and Britain's Not Got Talent and all, whatever those things are. And at the heart of some of them is, uh, for, you, know, there's, there's, you know, people who are, in a sense, getting on the bandwagon of... Uh, a, a small amount of effort to produce a massive amount of glory. And there's almost a message in there that defies the idea of hard work and faithfulness and humility and serving others. 
Vashti represents that. For many of us, she's the type of hero model that's more realistic, that actually you may need to do the right thing in certain situations and you may never get reward, acknowledgement and thanks for what you do like her. Are you a Vashti type person or is God drawing your attention to that? You know, Jesus says that actually he keeps the records, God keeps the books and at the end of times when in that kind of wedding banquet imagery we are all drawn to God, uh, uh, Jesus says what was done in secret will then be shouted from the rooftops and all the Vashtis of the world will be honoured. And all the famous names who have already received their honour or honour they were never due probably won't get honoured in that moment. And crowns and rewards will be given to people never before heard of because of their quiet and humble faithfulness in small things and in great. And then lastly we have um, Esther. And Esther is the heroine of her story. And the striking thing about Esther is that she's, she's young. We don't know exactly how old, but she, she may have only been 14 when this all began. 14 is not very old to be put under incredible responsibility to save your entire race of people. In fact, maybe you followed that story of the um, uh, girl in Pakistan, is, is it Malaha? And uh, she's the girl that spoke out, basically saying girls should be educated as well as boys. I'm sure something we agree with. Uh, but in her culture, that's a revolutionary thought, literally. And she's been outspoken for that. And then a few weeks ago, someone she's been shot in the head and she's very seriously ill because of that. She is only 15 years old. She's an Esther-type figure. And in fact, very probably from her speak, through her speaking out and maybe what others will do as well, maybe that that whole thing will change because she stepped out and took incredible risk for something that was important in order to see change. And it's really important that we see in this story that Esther is not perfect. She is not some snow-white, perfect Disney figure. She is not someone who we just think, you know, she's just, you know beautiful inside and out, she's wonderful in every way and we worship the ground that she walks on. She is a very imperfect figure. We don't quite know the dynamics of she, that she played along with this, this whole thing of the auditions with the king. Maybe she had no choice or maybe that was her worldview, or maybe she just went along with it. Um, she, she does need to be challenged by Mordecai to, and told Now is the time that you need to stand up. You've not just been given this incredibly privileged life for no reason. You've got to now do something with it. She she does need to be told, we we need to be called to pray about this. We need to bring this to our God and not just allow this to unfold in any way. In a way, we might see her as a victim. And that's very much again in our news. And uh, perhaps she's a victim who rises above what's done to her. And that's not necessarily an easy thing. And if you listen to some of the people who've given accounts in uh, the Jimmy Savile investigation, many of them report um, a very short incident from many years ago that has actually spoiled and marred their life for for years. A a small 
thing that made them a victim has actually had a very powerful spoiling influence over her life. But Esther, in a way, maybe has risen through that and above that. And of course, she is ultimately incredibly brave. And it's easy to read the story knowing what happens to, to not appreciate the significance of the fact that she, you know, she goes before the king knowing, in a few minutes, I might be killed for daring to try and do what I think I should do. I wonder if you're an Esther person. Maybe you're young and you need to not look down on yourself because of your youth, but set an example for everyone in speech and life and love and faith and purity. Great verse, isn't it? Maybe you you need to not see your youth as, as something that holds you back, but imagine God can use young people to transform the world. He did it through Esther, and he's doing it still today. Or maybe you identify with Esther not because you're young, but you see that she's an imperfect hero. She's someone who's uh, muddled and and, uh, maybe hasn't done everything right, and yet actually wants to embrace what God is doing, and she wants to, to go with it. And maybe there's a moment when she's called to an account for that, and maybe you identify with that. Maybe you can identify with her as kind of a, a figure in the secular world, like a, like a person uh, at work. Because uh, for years she kept her faith hidden. And then, you know, she didn't, she, didn't, she was maybe ashamed of it. And it, it took years, and maybe the, you know, the prompting of Mordecai, before she was able to, to go to the king and say, by the way, this is who I am, and this is what I believe. And uh, maybe it's like that for you in terms of your um, studies or your work, that actually that there's a real challenge in working out how do I live my faith in a secular environment where maybe it's not looked up to and praised. Well, the end of this story, and it's going to lead us into, in a minute after our discussion, um, having bread and wine together, is Purim. And for the, for the uh, Jewish people... The book of Esther serves as an account for the origins of this annual feast of Purim. The word Purim just means lottery and it's picked up from uh, um, chapter 3 when Haman uh, uh, throws in his lot and plans the date of the destruction of the Jews. Uh, And it it becomes this annual event where the book of Esther is read in the synagogues and the story is kind of retold and celebrated. One commentator said it, it, uh, Purim is like the Jewish Mardi Gras. It's a, it's a celebration that lasts several days of something of their heritage. And uh, even from ancient times, uh, what would have happened is the book would have been read in the synagogues, and uh, in some synagogues even now, and in, in the ancient times in synagogues, only men would have gone to the synagogue, and so it would have been the only occasion when women were included as well. Um, so it's like a little treat for the women who don't normally get to go to the synagogue. They were included. And it was seen as, this is a formative story of our race that centres around the importance of a woman. It was a powerful story about a woman in leadership. And uh, uh, in fact, I once went to a Purim party years ago. And I didn't remember until we started doing this Esther series. And uh, what happens is, in different ways, people often dress up as one of the characters in the story, 
Um, and sometimes people wear masks, and you can, so you can get Haman masks, where you, and Haman, of course, is ugly, you know, and, and horrible, and really old, and whatever, so you wear your Haman mask, or you might have a beautiful Esther mask, and then as the story is told in your synagogue, there are all sorts of actions and things that you say and do as it unfolds, so it's, it's sort of a participation, it's a bit like a pantomime, where you, we've all kind of learned there are certain things we say at certain times, you know, he's behind you, and oh no, he isn't, and all those, you know, stuff like that, and... Um, uh, uh, Haman gets a bad deal in the telling of this story. So whenever ha- Haman's name is mentioned, um, people might shout out, Cursed be Haman. Or um, they may shout out, May the name of the wicked rot forever. And there, there are such things as Haman noisemakers that you can get for this event. So whenever Haman comes on and has a line, you, you make your noisemaker. And the idea is... We're blotting out his words from history because he's wicked, so he's forgotten. And Esther is going to be remembered because she did the right thing. And in some of these parties, not the one I went to, um, you can have an effigy of Haman that's put on a fire and burns. Sounds a bit like bonfire night and a penny for the guy. And you can even get Haman uh, sweets called Haman pockets that are triangular shapes, apparently because of his triangular hat. I think it's meant to be like a silly hat. So you can have triangular-shaped biscuits that are called Haman's Pockets uh, to do with his uh, hat. And apparently, and it seems dreadfully inappropriate to me, but also Purim sometimes has beauty competitions for young girls. I think that's a bit sick, actually. But there you go. Kind of the reliving and the retelling of the story of Esther. Let's find a young girl, just like Xerxes did. Let's see who's the most beautiful girl in our community, but it's, that's how it's celebrated. And I know that Purim, uh, for the Jewish people, has come up um, through history and has been seen as a symbol of their deliverance. And so it was seen, for example, during the Nuremberg trials, and I think just like there were ten sons of Haman that were hanged um, then um, uh, in one of the Nuremberg trials, ten of the, the top uh, staff of Hitler were, were hanged. Um, in the trials. And uh, so there's lots written about this Jewish festival as kind of an enduring story, not just a story that had relevance once, but that has ongoing relevance um, through the time of the Jewish people. Well, we're going to. Um, oh, let's switch through all those that we should have done. Never mind. And we're going to just have a quick chance to chat at your table before we have bread and wine together. We'll introduce that in a minute. And I'd love you just to chat about what is it that's impacted you most. From this book. It might be your frustration that it doesn't give the answer, or it, it doesn't say, and this is what, you know, go and do likewise, or uh, don't be like this, you know, one drink is enough and no more. Maybe there's a frustration that as you read the story, actually, you have to do some work to work out what it means for you. Maybe you identify with one of the characters, or you see things in you like the negative characters, you think, actually, that's something I really want to deal with. And, respond to, or you look at the examples of the heroes in the story and you, you want to be uh, like them. So we'll get a break for two or three minutes. Uh, do say hi to the people on your table and uh, the questions on the screen and then we'll do some more of that. <laughs>